Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and welcome to Master Leadership Through Crisis series, where we will connect with leaders worldwide to gain insights on important questions to help us navigate through rough waters. If you would like to participate as a guest, or if you have a question that you would like to ask a guest, go to masterleadership.org for more information. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Natalie Nixon, who changes lives through ideas. She is a creativity strategist who happily integrates wonder and rigor into her life and work. She converted a 16-year career as a professor into a successful consulting practice. At Figure Eight Thinking, she emboldens leaders and organizations to apply creativity and foresight for transformative business results. Clients have included Comcast, Bloomberg, Vanguard, and Living Cities. Natalie incorporates her background in anthropology and fashion, as well as her experience living in Brazil, Israel, Germany, Sri Lanka, and Portugal to help her clients become more dynamic versions of themselves. She is a global speaker and the author of The Creativity Leap, Unleash Curiosity, Improvisation, and Intuition at Work. The editor of Strategic Design Thinking, Innovation in Products, Services, Experiences, and Beyond, and a regular contributor to Inc. Magazine on creativity, design thinking, and the future of work. When she's not dancing up a storm in hip-hop class, she's fine-tuning her foxtrot, salsa, and tango on the ballroom floor. She lives in her hometown of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania with her husband, John Nixon, and is the proud stepmother of Sydney. Welcome, Dr. Natalie Nixon. How are you? Great. Thank you so much for having me, Lily. Well, we're excited to have you on our podcast. Are you ready to point to our listeners? Yes. Happy to be here. Okay, fantastic. Now, Natalie, tell us a bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now. So I have an incredibly loopy background, which has always made sense to me. And now I'm at a stage in my career and life where all of those divergent paths have converged into the work that I do now. So my background is in anthropology and fashion. And I always say that anthropology equipped me with the worm's eye view of society versus fields like sociology or econ, which gives us the bird's eye view. And it really trained me with a certain level of curiosity and a way to frame questions. My background in fashion equipped me with a deep appreciation for the role of beauty and aesthetics and desire, as well as the role of technology and logistics and understanding consumer insights. So I first started out as an entrepreneurial hat designer, and then I worked for a division of the limited brands in global sourcing and lived and worked in Sri Lanka and Portugal and made bras and panties for Victoria's Secret. 
The next chapter of my career, I was a professor. I was a professor for 16 years. I was a very entrepreneurial academic and created something called the Strategic Design MBA program for the last six years of my academic career. And I looked up one day in 2016 where I had started what I called at the time my side hustle Mm -hmm. and realized that I was having more fun in my side hustle, which was figure eight thinking and left academia, resigned from it in 2017. I have not looked back. I've been a creativity strategist for the past three years. And my work as a strategic advisor to leaders to help them apply creativity and foresight so that they can achieve transformative business results. You're not kidding. This is very divergent and wonderful. As soon as I wrote down divergent, I wrote down creative. And so figure eight, where can we get more information? So my company is Figure Eight Thinking, the number eight, not spelled out. Mm-hmm. And so if you go to figure8thinking.com, there's a number of resources that I freely share there. You can download a free sample chapter of my new book, The Creativity Leap. I'm building a thriving YouTube channel, which is just do a search for Natalie Nixon. I share a lot of content on that around design thinking and applying creativity and foresight. And really there's three verticals to my company, Figure Eight Thinking. One vertical is the speaking and writing. So I'm a global keynote speaker. I love speaking because it's a way for me to prototype my ideas. And the book was really a product of the speaking because I realized after enough people would come up to me and say, that was great. Where can I read more about this? I blog for Inc., but I wanted a way to productize my intellectual capital. So the book, The Creativity Leap, is one way to do that. So one vertical is speaking and writing. The other vertical of my business are foresight studios. So I lead and facilitate sessions for executive leadership, board retreats for strategic planning, but really in the context of foresight and really helping leaders understand and explore the business that they think they're in versus the business that they should be in. And we do a lot of scenario planning work. And then the other part of my business is the consulting in the form of a new course, which I'm launching starts October 1st. It's a companion piece to the book. So it's a group coaching course called Your Creativity Leap. It's in the form of longer term consulting engagements and also I'm starting to do a lot more strategic advising and coaching, which I'm loving. Oh my goodness. There's so many questions I want to ask. You spoke about Foresight Studios, that you want to move people from where they think they should be to where they should be. Two questions I typically get invited in to help with. One question is, we're part of this legacy sector or we have these legacy systems in place and new upstarts are eating our lunch. Can you help us? And that typically is a question around business model innovation. And that was to my point of the gap analysis between the daily churn of this is our business model versus the business you actually should be in. And the second question I get invited to help a lot with is we have all these silos in our organization and we have to work in a more collaborative way. Can you help us? And both of those questions end up being around culture change. I feel like I should create a t-shirt that says, it's culture, silly, because that's... (laughs) You sure? That's your fashion persona coming through. I think that is a fantastic idea. I have a model for you, by the way. 
Okay, good. That's what I do for a t-shirt. So an example would be in the philanthropy sector, for example, I help organizations on the private sector side as well as in philanthropy. And one of the big challenges in philanthropy is really identifying earned revenue. And what that begins to help them shift to in the philanthropy side is shifting away from only selling services to also starting to sell experiences. And that might even start to delve into selling products. On the flip side, and a lot of time on the private sector side, where they've been churning out products, the way that they can actually serve their customers in a more meaningful way is to shift to the experience side, is to shift to the service side. So that tends to be the three dimensions that we can explore. What's the problem you're solving for people on a functional level, on a social level, and on an emotional level? That's fantastic. Now, another thing you mentioned was that when you speak, you like to speak because you prototype ideas. I've never heard that. Tell me about that. Well, I never write out my talks. I really customize them for the client. I really get a deep understanding of why they're convening. I like to contextualize it in terms of the moment in time where we are. And I want to make sure I connect the dots between possibly new ideas and new framing that they never considered Mm -hmm. all the way to their particular sector. So because of that, I'm really riffing a lot of the time. I'm improvising on ideas and frameworks that I have already been developing, but trying them on through a different lens, through the lens of healthcare, through the lens of financial services, through the lens of entertainment and media, And in that way, it really helps me to stretch and to grow. You know, because I was a professor for 16 years, I believed I became a better teacher the more I love to learn. And I think the best teachers really love learning. And I am a nerd at heart, so I really love learning. So that's why I say that every keynote speaking opportunity gives me the opportunity to stretch and learn and really prototype an idea. And a prototype is, you know, it's a rough draft, ugly mock-up of an idea that we can then refine by build, test, learn, build, test, learn. I love that. And it just speaks to the fact that you're a risk taker as well, which in leadership is important. Yes. Now, Now, speaking of education, I did hear a little bit of a talk that you did and you used a word that typically makes me cringe in education, but you used it differently. The word that I'm talking about is rigor, because to me, that word doesn't fit in education. But you coupled it with wonder. Then it landed so differently for me. (laughs) That's awesome. Yes. You are very aligned with so many of my colleagues and friends who work in education who are really part, I don't know if I could call it a movement, but they are really very intentional about, you know, raising valid questions when the emphasis in education seems to only be on rigor. And I do want to make a distinction between rigor and rigidity. They are very different things. And so the way I define creativity is that it's our ability and our capacity to toggle between wonder and rigor to solve problems. So wonder is about awe, audacity, asking big blue sky, what if questions. It's also about pausing. Rigor is about time on task. It's about discipline. It's about skill development. It's often very solitary. It's not sexy. 
And what we've done when we typically think about creativity in our society, we've ghettoized it in the arts. We've romanticized it. We have language such as, I'm not a creative type, or I am a creative. And in my view, when we ghettoize creativity only in the arts, that's not fair to artists because artists actually do the hard work of wrestling with ambiguity and the discomfort of uncertainty. They fall in love with process and they totally make time for the wonder and the rigor. Being creative is not about pulling something randomly out of your armpit, right? It requires a lot of intentional thought, discipline, that's the rigor, as well as providing opportunity for the time and space to dream, to be crazily audacious and then dial it back down from there. So when I talk about rigor, I'm really talking about the need that actually a lot of companies and organizational culture are not doing. They're not actually giving people the time for that heads down work to really concentrate, to really understand the depth of a matter. And we need both. We need time and space designed for the rigor and for the wonder. They are equally important. And I love how you described it as toggling between both, because now I feel good. I feel good about rigor, as long as you're toggling with wonder and creativity. And the way you've expressed it is so beautifully done. Now, Natalie, at the time of this interview, we're hopefully at the tail end of the COVID pandemic. We don't know. We are experiencing strife and a lot of turmoil in the U.S. So what quotes or advice or practice has helped you most during this time? Since March of 2020, I began to sign off on my emails with the expression, stay buoyant. And the reason why staying buoyant has deep meaning for me, probably, I guess, first of all, I'm a dancer and I'm a swimmer. And in swimming, for example, swimming in open water in the ocean or lake, if you start to feel tired or you're panicking for some reason, the best thing to do technique-wise is to flip on your back. And so you float. And when you float, there's a couple of things that happen. You're basically in the zone of being buoyant. Number one, you stop churning, you stop fighting, right? So you relinquish control when you're buoyant. Secondly, by flipping over onto your back, you dramatically shift perspective. So all of a sudden, the big open sky is what you see, the vastness of that sky, whether it's a cloudy day or a sunny day. So that shift in perspective is really important. And third, when you relinquish control and become buoyant, you are in flow. You are at one with the elements, with the water, with your breath, with nature. And so at this time of the COVID-19 quarantine, the need to stay buoyant, to relinquish control, to shift perspective, and to be in flow is really important. You know, so many of us kept saying, at the beginning of COVID back in March, gosh, this was like Groundhog Day. You know, every morning it kind of felt like the same. And I experienced that as well until I realized I had an opportunity to redesign my relationship with time. And that's the silver lining in this quarantine. We've actually always had an opportunity to redesign our relationship with time, but we were so busy turning day by day by day and getting up and going this place and going that place. Now we are forced to pause and we're forced to question a lot of 
things, we have an opportunity to design new rituals, to strategic align with people in different parts of the world because we are always on these digital platforms where you know space and time boundaries are really different so staying buoyant has become really meaningful and important to me as a reminder during this time hey leaders stay tuned for the rest of the interview following this brief message if you want to find claim develop and expand your voice in order to land that job those clients or that partner then Master Your Swag podcast is for you. You don't have to have expert credentials to be featured, and you can select from several plans that can perfectly match your needs. Go to MasterYourSwag.com and claim your spot as a guest, and be ready to get noticed. That's MasterYourSwag.com. I love what you learned and how you expressed it, you know, this is all through your experience to relinquish control, shift perspective and be in flow is a great way to be every day, right? A, it a is. To practice. How do you practice all that? Daily? This actually connects well to the question you just asked me about rigor. You know, sometimes when I talk about wonder and rigor is in the way that I define creativity in my book, The Creativity Leap, people say, well, what should you start with? Wonder first or rigor first? It doesn't matter, just start, because here's the thing. There's two corollaries I developed. The first part of this equation is that wonder is found in the midst of rigor, which is to say, when you're in the middle of a rigorous task, for me, that might be pulling out weeds in my garden. It might be completing my taxes or doing some big jumbo Excel sheet. That's rigorous for me, personally. In the middle of those moments of rigor is when that kind of aha wonder thought sometimes pops into my head. The corollary to saying that wonder is found in the midst of rigor is that rigor cannot be sustained without wonder. So in a lot of my consulting work, there's a lot of churn of going from meeting to meeting, incessant meetings. Even now, people are having trouble putting boundaries on their time and they're afraid, well, clients will get mad. Well, Actually, clients will respect those boundaries if you stick to them. And your employees especially will respect that. And the productivity will increase because people need time away. So that second part of the corollary, which is that rigor cannot be sustained without wonder, you need to be able to step away, to dream, to have rest, to pause, to awe. As a matter of fact, I regularly schedule daydream breaks <laughs> I love in my it. day. Yeah, I mean, I, sometimes it. it's only two minutes long, and that's yeah, okay. Love it. Love it, it. It's five minutes long. But we don't realize that our brains have different zones and dimensions, and if we're only using the frontal lobe for that deep cognitive thought, we're actually not going to get to that sought-after prize called innovation because we need the other neural synapses in our brains to be activated so that the ideas can, my words, not a neuroscientist words, but they need to marinate so that we can all of a sudden make those connections that we previously didn't see. And I've discovered that as well because I tend to hyper-focus, especially when I'm working on a project. And what I noticed was that after doing that for a prolonged period of time, I was depressed 
exhausted. I have forgotten to eat. I mean, yeah. and so, so I had to do the same thing that you're talking about, schedule breaks. I have yes. to work for this time and then break, even if I don't feel like it. It has boosted my creativity and my demeanor and my thought process. Yeah, um, so you're I mean, so spot on. If you're able to go outside and take a short walk around the block, do that. If you can empty the dishwasher or do the dishes, do that. There's something else about movement that kinesthetic approach. I mean, part of the reason why my company is called Figure Eight Thinking is not because I was an ice skater, but it's really to denote the iterative process of returning back to center and building out and returning and building out. So that's one reason my company is called Figure Eight Thinking, that shape. But the other reason it's called Figure Eight Thinking is that I am a kinesthetic learner. I mentioned that I studied dance since I was four years old. There's something about moving and making in order to learn that makes complete sense for me. And that's the other part of the name of my company that I really wanted to highlight that spoke to me. But taking those breaks, movement, you know, Einstein would reportedly be, you know, seen walking down the streets of Princeton, fiddling on his violin. Uh, he would take breaks on his piano, but you need to step away. Yeah, I can't stress how important that is, and I'm glad that you are. We're speaking to a lot of leaders. That's where we need to hear it. So as a lifelong learner, what are you learning now? Right now... I actually have a lesson tomorrow. So I mentioned that I've been studying dance since age four and I'm a newer student of ballroom dance. So I'm studying tango, foxtrot, and some of the Latin dances like salsa and bachata, those forms of dance. My stepdaughter, Sydney, gifted me for Mother's Day this year a pickling set because I love pickles. So I'm starting to learn how to pickle vegetables. You know, when you're a clumsy student of something, which is what I am by, you know, studying different forms of dance, pickling vegetables. Number one, you develop a healthy sense of humor about yourself because I'm pretty bad at most of the things I just listed. And you learn to practice what the other part of my creativity framework, which are the three eyes. You learn to practice inquiry, improvisation, and intuition. Those are the ways we can exercise toggling between wonder and rigor. And what I mean by that is when I show up with Nodari, my Russian ballroom dance instructor, when I don't get something, I have to get better at reframing my question until I can understand it, right? And one of these I really appreciate from the work of Warren Berger, who wrote A More Beautiful Question, is that asking questions is a way of thinking, right? Especially in our educational system, and definitely in, our, in a lot of our organizational work culture, we have downgraded curiosity and asking questions to only ignorance, which of course you're ignorant if you ask a question, you don't know the answer to something, but so what? It's a method of exploration, experimentation. You know, only good things follow the phrase, I wonder. I wonder if, I wonder what would happen, you know, so we got to ask more questions. So when we're a clumsy student, we get better at inquiry. I definitely have become much better at being an improviser. And to me, improvisation is about being adaptive, self-organizing, anticipating what's coming around the corner. It's about the build. It's about yes and, not yeah, but we tried that 10 years ago and it didn't work or flat out no. And then there's the intuition piece. And when I first started to explore intuition and leadership, I was really shy about doing that because just a bit of context, 
when I launched the strategic design MBA program, I don't have an MBA degree, namely because I never found an MBA program that spoke to me. I, it would have been a slow death for me personally. <laughs> so this MBA program was really kind of the MBA I would have loved to have learned in. So it was studio model learning, design thinking was integrated throughout it. But I often felt like a David in a sea of Goliaths because I'm in Philly. I'm, you know, right in under the shadows of the very storied Wharton, you know, one of the top business schools in the world. And I was really often felt like I was pushing a boulder up a hill and just saying, hey, guys, what if we approach teaching and learning strategy and leadership and financial operations and branding in this way, as well as these other, you know, traditional routes? So when I started the Strategic Design MBA program, my professional network started to include startup leaders. And I was observing that to every successful startup leader, as they would tell their origin story, there would always be these moments when they'd reflect on, something told me not to do the deal. Something told me to work with her over him, even though her pedigree wasn't as snuffy. And I thought, this is so interesting. What is this something? I think it's intuition. We don't touch it in business school. We don't touch intuition in medical school. We don't touch intuition in law school. But to every successful leader, they credit intuition as a way to help them with the decision-making. And I define intuition as a type of pattern recognition. So for the book, The Creativity Leap, I interviewed over 50 people who come from a range of different sectors. And to a person, they all acknowledge the role of intuition. Steve Jobs acknowledged intuition. Again, Albert Einstein did, Harriet Tubman. So the successful leaders totally lean on what I call this internal antenna, which is like this muscle. And the more you ignore it and don't listen to it, the flabbier and dimmer it gets. And the more you do act on it, the stronger and clearer it gets. And so how do you develop intuition? By listening to it, by paying attention, by being still and not needing to rationalize your decisions to someone else, right? We actually are hardwired to pay attention to intuition. There is something in every one of us, in our bodies, there is a nerve called the vagus nerve. It's spelled V-A-G-U-S. And it extends from our cranium down through our heart into our gut. So when we talk about thinking on your feet, following my gut, you know, there's a reason for that. We are literally wired to connect mind, heart, and gut. And so the only way we get better at it is by doing it, by paying attention to it and not ignoring it, not sweeping under the rug. I created a card game called the Wonder Rigger Discovery Deck. And also in my book, you are the most interesting woman I have ever spoken to. Oh gosh. Like well, all the so many things you've done. There's so many <laughs> things you've done and now you've created a game. Yes. Okay, tell us about it. I created a card game even before I wrote the book. And the reason I created the card game is because I believe play is really important. I believe that play is a method of experimentation and discovery. And when we play, things stick. Again, that's a kinesthetic piece. So I created the card game really for my clients. And as a strategist, I created this two by two and one extreme of the two by two was wonder. Another was rigor. And there's four domains. If you think of this quadrant, 
And it was really an opportunity through a series of questions to help teams think through, based on the challenge at hand in our present state, how much more wonder do we need to build into this process? How much more rigor do we need to build into this process? And how might we do that? Who do we need to talk to? Who do we need to invite in the process? What do we need to learn more of, right? So that was the purpose of this wonder rigor game. I have so many other questions, but I don't want to keep you for too long. <laughs> so Natalie, I wonder, uh-huh. what do you think of leadership today? What most concerns you and what are you most hopeful about? What concerns me about leadership today is that it's become, in my view, a bit cookie cutter in terms of who our go-to models are of leaders, right? Who do we go to as recognizable standouts of who's a great leader? And quite frankly, in full transparency, I'm an African-American woman and the models tend to be male and pale. And I know so many incredible people who I consider leaders who don't necessarily fit into that mold. And I have been saying for years now, anecdotally, I have no scientific evidence for this, but I'm just speaking about the United States of America specifically. We are probably at one one thousandth of the level of innovation that we could be because of barriers to entry based on racism and sexism and classism, right? We don't acknowledge that the more diverse the inputs, the more innovative the output. I can't possibly think of the sorts of questions, Lily, that you would think of and vice versa, right? We need so many more different types of people around the table so that we get to a much more interesting and meaningful solution. And frankly, the only way in my view, in my opinion, that we're going to see our way out of what I've been calling this triple pandemic, which is COVID-19, systemic racism, and unsustainability of the earth, is through creativity. Because creativity thrives in mess. The creativity loves process. Creativity requires us to not settle for a singular solution, but to be much more exploratory. And creativity also thrives where there's cognitive diversity, where we are with people who don't approach that same challenge from our lens, our perspective. So what really troubles me about leadership today, at this late stage of the game in 2020, we still, you know, you open up any major business thought leadership press, on our major media channels, it's kind of the same go-to talking heads, right? And that really doesn't make sense to me. As a woman of color who's lived in Brazil, Germany, Israel, Sri Lanka, Portugal, this is a really big dynamic world. And we are really not doing ourselves any favors by limiting it in the way that we limit. What I'm hopeful about is that the door is creaking open for people like you, for people like me. There's increasing acknowledgement because of some of the tragedies we've had this summer of 2020, where the curtain has been pulled back on systemic racism in the United States, where I hope it doesn't become kind of this fad and this trend of what we're calling diversity, equity, and inclusion. The emphasis really has to be on equity, right? So Mm -hmm. What makes me hopeful is that younger people especially seem to be convinced of this memo. They are asking very different 
and appropriate questions. And they give me hope that we'll be able to shift things around. You know, I often say that I got my cajones from my father. My father was an incredibly audacious and confident Black man. He would be what is called a race man. He was incredibly proud of who he was. And he made it his point to expose his children to be in spaces and rooms where we would feel like, of course, we should be here. And I totally credit my parents for having that audacity because he just had a clarity of who he was. You know, I recently, like a year ago, had a genealogy chart done of both sides of my family. And it was incredibly empowering to learn that I can trace my lineage in the United States of America back to 1792. I am a proud descendant of enslaved Black people. And I'm very proud of that because I understand what that means. I understand that I'm descended from people who literally built the United States of America through all sorts of terrorism and through all sorts of denial. And yet here we are. So my father, without even knowing those sorts of details, just had that clarity of presence and was an incredibly curious man, extreme extrovert. When I was a little girl, I thought my daddy knows everybody because he would talk to the homeless man on the street and he would talk to the man in the Brooks Brothers suit. He was a salesman. He worked in pharmaceutical sales. So that was probably part of his gift and his talent. But I think part of it for some people of color is second guessing, not having the confidence, but we must, we must. And what a gift that is that your dad was able to impart that on you. Now, are you an only child? No, I have a younger sister and an older brother. My mother is still alive. My father died in 2012. My mom is 80 years old. And this is the kind of woman my mother is. When my mother turned 50, she learned to play the cello. And she's still playing. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. That is fantastic. So so that's who I come from. I'm not surprised. (laughs) So Jim Johnson wants to know two things. Who are you? And do you have a personal mission statement? Yes. I am a child of God. I am an incredibly smart and goofy African-American middle-aged woman. And my mantra, my mission is to change lives with ideas. That's what I wake up to do every day. I knew you would nail that question. All right. So as a listener of this podcast, Natalie, what is a question that you would like a future leadership guest to respond to? What do you wonder? I would love a future guest to respond to either both these questions or choose one. Who for you, living or dead, is a wonder mentor? In other words, who do you look up to who models for you the elements of wonder, awe, audacity, asking big blue sky questions? The counterpoint to that question is, Who for you, living or dead, is a rigor mentor who models discipline, time on task, practice? Those would be my questions. I tell you, you have shifted how I feel about rigor. Oh, good. Well, I would love to send you a signed copy of my book. You read my mind. This intuition thing is going on. Okay. I'll mail you a copy of the book. Now, Natalie, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? 
Yes, two things. I love for them to check out figure8thinking.com and if they're so inclined, download a free sample chapter of the Creativity Week. There is a link right on the homepage on the top of the page. Uh, they will also be opting in to receive the Ever Wonder newsletter. And I don't bombard you, I send it about six times a year. The second invitation is to seriously think about joining me for coaching, either my group coaching course, Your Creativity Leap, or for one-on-one -on -one coaching. And all that information can be found on figure8thinking.com. Natalie, I want to thank you so much for adding value to me and to our listeners. It's been a great conversation. Thank you for having me. This was awesome. All right. Have a great day. You too. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.